crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and today we'll be continuing our series on the modern identity of the 12 tribes of Israel. So thus far, if you've been keeping up with the series, with the the live feed or or the podcast on watchjerusalem.co.il, you'll note that we've covered Reuben, Dan, Judah, Ephraim, Zebulun, Manasseh, Asher, and a bit of Ishakah. And today we'll be looking at the tribe of Gad. And then we should be able to cover off the rest with two, at most about three more programs on the series. Now, each of the tribes of Israel are very unique in themselves, and there's some fascinating biblical history and prophecy about each of them. Obviously, historians and archaeologists, they tend to focus on the history of ancient Israel as a whole, but Israel has has always had very strong tribal patriotism. So as we have been asking on each of these programs in the series, what became of each of these separate lost tribes of Israel, as they're called, uh, lost ten tribes, these lost tribes of Israel following the destruction uh, and deportation of the Israelites by the Assyrians. And for today's program, what became of the tribe of Gad? Now, let's lay some groundwork. During the reign of King Rehoboam, the, the northern ten tribes split off and became known as the northern kingdom of Israel, Israelites. The remaining tribes uh, ruled by Rehoboam, they became a separate kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, the Jews. So while all the tribes can be referred to collectively as or individually as Israelites, only those of the kingdom of Judah can be called Jews, uh, a short form of the tribal name Judah. Now the Jews today are almost exclusively descendants of this southern kingdom of Judah. So what happened to the other tribes? During the late 700s BCE, the the ten-tribe nation of Israel was conquered and they were taken captive by Assyria. The Bible describes their deportation by the Assyrians up as far as northern Iran, and then the record stops. Then the biblical record stops and they become lost to world view. They become known as the lost ten tribes. Whereas the Jews, on the other hand, they continued to remain in the Holy Land following that Assyrian conquest. Uh, And uh, as the Bible relates, about 150 years later, they were conquered by the Babylonians. But the Jews, those of the southern kingdom of Judah, still continued to retain their identity through later migrations and conquests. They are easily identified in history largely by their written records and especially by religious practices. Whereas the northern Israelites, they they had turned exclusively to paganism, blending in with the surrounding cultures, and so they were deported and became known again as the Lost Ten Tribes. So what happened to them? Where did they go? 
And for this program, what happened to the tribe of Gad? Genesis 49 is a chapter of prophecy about what would become of each of the tribes of Israel, as verse 1 states, in the last days. This is verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. End quote. Jacob goes on to describe the specific types of people and nations that each tribe would eventually become. And he describes the kind of power and specialities that, that each tribe would have based on the character of their tribal fathers. It's a really fascinating, detailed prophecy, Genesis 49, of the future of these tribes, of their national identity in the last days, at the time, just prior to the coming of the Messiah. So these tribes must be on the scene somewhere. That's what we clearly read from Genesis 49. They are present in the last days. They're identifiable in the last days. Now, at Watch Jerusalem, we uh, often reference our free book by Herbert W. Armstrong, uh, a book called The United States and Britain in Prophecy. You can order that on our website. And this book goes, goes through in a lot of detail uh, exactly what happened to the lost ten tribes of Israel. It looks at how they became lost, where they went, and where they are today. So in the United States and Britain and Prophecy, in his book, Mr. Armstrong pieces together the puzzle from the Bible and uh, matches it up to secular history, showing that, the, that following the Assyrian captivity, the northern ten tribes, they migrated up from the Middle East, from northern Iran, further up into Europe, and then on into the British Isles. And his book focused primarily on the two birthright tribes, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Ephraim had been prophesied to become a great company or commonwealth of nations, Great Britain and her commonwealth, and Manasseh had been prophesied to become a great singular superpower, uh, the United States of America. So Mr. Armstrong's book primarily looks at these two tribes, Ephraim as modern-day Britain and, the, and her commonwealth, and Manasseh as America. And he also points out that that modern nation of Israel in the Middle East uh, the Jewish state, that they are the tribe of Judah, specifically, the Jews. So what of the other tribes? Mr. Armstrong doesn't go into to great detail about it in his book, but this is what he states on page 108, quote, We lack space for a detailed explanation of the specific identity of all of these other tribes in the nations of our 20th century. Suffice it to say here that there is ample evidence that these other eight tribes have descended into such northwestern European nations as Holland, Belgium, Denmark, northern France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway. End quote. So what of the tribe of Gad? This tribe is represented by the modern nation of Switzerland. So first for this program, we'll look at the tribal parallels and prophecies comparing what the ancient tribe of Gad looked like with Switzerland today. Now, the patriarch Gad was one of the two offspring of Leah's handmaid, Zilpah. 
So if you recall the biblical account, you'll, you might remember a bit of a war going on between the two wives of Jacob, Rachel and Leah, for, for bearing children and for claiming the love of their husband, Jacob. And both wives sort of unleashed their handmaids into the fray. And Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, uh, bore Gad and Asher for her. Genesis 30 uh, describes his birth. Verses 10 to 11 read as follows. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop comes. And she called his name Gad. So the name Gad sounds familiar to the Hebrew word for fortune, i.e. Gad's uh, Gad's birth brought fortune. As such, it could be a, a play on this word, but it is also translated as a troop. Specifically in, in the King James Version and many other uh, versions, translated as troop, a fighting force. And we see that translation uh, confirmed in the Genesis 49 prophecy of the tribe, which talks about Gad in relation to being a troop, as well as another prophecy of the tribe of Gad in Deuteronomy 33. So we have this verse, uh, a troop comes and she called his name Gad. So Gad meaning troop. Again, Genesis 49 is the primary chapter outlining what the 12 tribes would look like in the last days. And certain tribes have a more detailed description than others. Uh, some, some have quite long descriptions, such as for the tribes of Judah and Joseph, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. They have longer descriptions. But Gad has literally the shortest description of all 12 tribes in this prophetic passage in, um, in Genesis 49. Now, Deuteronomy 33, the, the secondary passage about the 12 tribes, that contains a little more information. But again, in this primary passage of Genesis 49, we have only one sentence for Gad. In fact, in the original Hebrew, It's a sentence of only six words, and that's found in verse 19. We read, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. So we see here a connection of Gad, again, to a troop or or raiders. And this is even more clear when you look at the original Hebrew, the six Hebrew words that are used. So four of these six words are variations of the root word gad. So essentially, if, if you sort of work it into the English, it reads gad, gadders will gad him, and he will gad after them. Or uh, to, to make it make sort of more sense, it would be something like gad, raiders will raid him, and he will raid after him. Again, gad meaning troop. So we'll get into more specifics on this verse as we go, but the long and the short of it is that Gad, the name Gad, means troop, a band, marauders, raiders, divisions of an army. You can translate it variously in that manner. And Genesis 49 talks about Gad going up against a Gad, a a troop. So these are the translations of the word then, troop marauders, a band. And then you go to Deuteronomy 33, 
and it describes Gad crouching like a lion within his territory, tearing uh, arms and heads. So Gad, a troop, a military band, divisions of an army. How on earth does this relate to peaceful Switzerland, you may ask? But as we'll see, Switzerland fits beautifully with this uh, description and with other descriptions of the tribe of Gad that we find in the Bible. So it is true that Switzerland is a pretty peculiar country in that it has been relatively peaceful uh, as a nation. Now, it's a little landlocked country, a mountainous country that hasn't been a colonizing empire Uh, It hasn't brandished its national military around like France has or like Germany has intent on on conquering Europe or conquering the world. Switzerland has remained uh, stoically neutral, uh, especially, most notably, for the past two world wars, and it still remains a politically neutral country. And in fact, it hasn't taken part in an armed conflict in over 500 years. Uh, as a nation. But but the Bible doesn't describe Gad as a colonizing force. It describes Gad, rather, as, as a troop, as a lion lying or crouching, as it's variously translated, within its own territory, ready to attack at any who dare invade. And so how does all this fit with Switzerland? There are some Pretty amazing facts, actually, uh, as I was researching into this about how this nation, uh, how this nation fits so well with the tribe of Gad. Some facts that you might not have been aware of. I, I certainly hadn't been. So here are some of the facts. Did you know that there are more soldiers per capita in Switzerland than in any other Western country? Military service is, is mandatory for all men in Switzerland. And they typically stay in reserves for about 30 years. And it goes beyond that because the Swiss keep their military weapons. They're given the military weapons and then they keep those with them. They take them home. Uh, Gun ownership in Switzerland is literally off the scale. Uh, Switzerland has one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the world. They actually come into third place. So, of course, you've got the the United States of America uh, uh, above Switzerland and Yemen as well. So Switzerland comes in at third place for gun ownership. Something like 4 million guns in the country, uh, a country of about 8.6 million people. And many of these guns are full-on military-grade weapons. So of the 8.6 million population... Available manpower is numbered at 44%, and fit-for-service personnel is 36%. So you you can forget having a military. Switzerland is a military. And uh, in in 1984, there's a famous author called John McPhee, and he quoted a Swiss officer as saying just that, as saying, quote, Switzerland doesn't have an army. Switzerland is an army. So, have you ever wondered why the Swiss have such a strange flag? It's it's not like any other national flag in the world. Uh, it's not a rectangle as as the common flags are around this world. The Swiss flag is a square. It's a red square with a with a white cross in the middle. And this was a military flag, a military ensign 
uh, that was adopted in the square form as the national flag. So we have a nation, literally, that is a troop. We have a national troop flag. Again, as described in the Bible, Gad is, he would be, a troop. Now, the nation is built around the military, built around defense. Every bridge and tunnel in the country has a demolition plan to allow the military to seal it off in the event of an invasion. So if you're an engineer uh, employed to build, uh, say, a bridge or a tunnel in Switzerland, typically you'll be asked to design its destruction, to incorporate its destruction into your design plans. Now, that's pretty, pretty incredible. Beyond that, into uh, regular business, uh, the military is deeply involved and intertwined with regular business in the nation. So the heads of major Swiss banks are typically military officers. Switzerland has uh, enough bomb shelters for the entire population in the event of a nuclear attack. Switzerland has the largest nuclear bomb shelter in the world. The, the list could go on. Again, go back to Genesis 30, Genesis 49. Is Gad a troop? Is Switzerland a troop? I should say so. So how was Switzerland so able to successfully stay out of uh, such dramatic events as the two world wars? After all, the country is landlocked and, and not landlocked on some distant continent. It's surrounded on all sides by Germany, likes of Austria, Italy, France, all countries that have had an aggressive imperial past. These, these countries, they make up large uh, swaths of Switzerland's border. And actually, Germany and Italy did have a plan to invade Switzerland during World War II. But that plan, called Operation Tannenbaum, it was scrapped. Why was that the case? Well, there's, there's a number of reasons. And part of it was, was Switzerland's civilian army, Again, armed to the teeth, ensconced with, within a really rough mountainous terrain. There was the threat of, again, demolishing major transportation tunnels, which would, which would cripple the movement of goods into Germany, uh, because Switzerland did keep trading with Germany during the war, uh, and that as well to dis dissuade them from invading the nation was pretty much a, a self-destructing fortress. There were false chalets dotted around the nation, false chalets decorated quite beautifully. One of them, a famous one, painted pink, the, the Villa Rose, I think it's called, uh, chalets like this dotting around the country. Uh, but they, these were actually uh, decorated concrete bunkers that concealed massive cannons so you get the picture. As, as Deuteronomy 33 says, Switzerland is like a crouching lion within its own territory, ready, prepared to tear apart invaders, to tear apart the arm and the head. So what about Gad's territory? What about the Swiss territory? Of course, modern-day Switzerland is pretty unique. It's, it's really a mountain fortress. So why would the tribe of Gad, migrating from the Middle East, why would they pick this territory of all territories to settle? Well, it actually sort of parallels their tribal allotment in ancient Israel. 
Gad is repeatedly associated with mountains in the Bible. Gad settled on the east side of the Jordan River and together with the tribe of Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they settled in and around the land of Gilead. And this included mountainous terrain. So in some ways, ancient Gad's territory parallels that of modern-day Western Europe. You've got ancient Gad that occupied mountainous terrain and that bordered directly with the tribe of Reuben. You've got modern Gad, Switzerland, in mountainous terrain and bordering on the modern-day tribe or nation of Reuben, France. And you can check out our program on that, Tribe of Reuben as France, on watchjerusalem.co.il. Anciently, the, the eastern tribes of Reuben and Gad, they were in sort of a compromised position, really, on the eastern flank, eastern border of Israel, directly bordering enemy territory to the east and separated from most of the other tribes to the west and to the north by a waterway known as the Jordan River, the once powerful Jordan River. And it's almost a a similar picture now to this day. You've got France and Switzerland directly bordered by powerful enemies to the east, and they're separated from many of the other tribes in the north and west by the English Channel, by that waterway there, the famous waterway, separated from the British Isles, Scandinavia, the New World, the locations of uh, many of the other Israelite tribes. So my favorite scripture about Gad has to be 1 Chronicles 12, verse 8. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 8 describes King David on the run from King Saul, and his mercenary crew is, is joined by certain elements of the various tribes of Israel. But there's a special mention made of the Gadites that came to join him, the men of the tribe of Gad. Verse 8 reads, quote, And of the Gadites there separated themselves unto David, uh, unto the hold, to the wilderness, men of might and men of war fit for the battle that could handle shield and buckler, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as the roe upon the mountains. End quote. So, so isn't that scripture pretty awesome? The Gadites, powerful, lion-like, warlike men, swift upon the mountains. Again, this, this comment, this um, extrapolation only for the tribe of Gad here. So these were some pretty remarkable men, a pretty remarkable tribe. And I will say a group group of us went to uh, Switzerland just a few months ago on a skiing trip. And wow, those, those Swiss are literally swift on the mountains, skiing, hiking, even driving on the somewhat snowy uh, roads. Uh, th- these are a people certainly familiar with mountainous terrain. And further notes should be made as well about the lion-like, troop-like nation of the Swiss. We've described how the nation itself isn't a colonizing one. As a nation, it, it, it doesn't have a warring uh, empirical past. But the Swiss are renowned as mercenaries. Again, another way that troop could be translated. And so outside of the national interest... The Swiss have been famously involved as mercenaries in numerous 
wars. Again, not fighting for the nation, the national interest itself as a national army, but really renowned uh, for sending out highly trained uh, troops, uh, hiring themselves out to other nations, mercenaries. And this too fits with the biblical account of Gad. Again, troops, uh, a troop, raiders, marauders, as the verse can be translated, mercenaries. You could say the same for those lion-like men that joined King uh, King David. So here's a case in point on, on the mercenary side of things. Perhaps you've seen pictures from the Vatican of of the funny dressed guards that 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 guard the Vatican with the bright costumes and the medieval weapons. What kind of force is this? Well, they're what is known as the Swiss Guards. It it's a mercenary group that started in the fifteenth century. So the Swiss were were again renowned as mercenaries, and they were hired specifically by the Vatican as protection for the Pope. They're especially renowned for a battle that they took part in in 1527, where nearly all of the 189 guards, nearly all of them died battling the Emperor Charles V, while uh, while Pope Clement VII, while the, the Pope made his escape. So the Swiss Guard mercenary force of the Vatican remains to this day, and they remain uh, dressed in that traditional gear, but even despite that, they're required to be fully, highly trained in the Swiss military, and they're prepared and they're trained to fight if the situation requires. So Switzerland, famous for mercenaries, especially as pikemen throughout history, uh, they, they were, in fact, so desirable that there was a German mercenary knockoff. Basically, uh, imitation groups, one in particular from Germany, uh, who, who tried to, to copy them and also fill the ranks of, of European armies, even to the point of wearing the same kind of clothing as the Swiss mercenaries typically would. So the Swiss mercenary groups were, were pretty bitter rivals against any imitation group, and they opposed them in some pretty remarkably bloody and, and brutal conflicts. So the Swiss would serve the Vatican, they're known for serving the armies of the kings of France, uh, the Spanish army, the Dutch army, and the British army. So you get the image of this lion-like, gadite, uh, mercenary-type people, swift on the mountains, uh, and even becoming so famous that, that they're even specifically mentioned in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Uh, this is, if, if you're interested in checking it out, it's in scene five, about two-thirds of the way through the play. It's a scene at the castle where Ophelia is, is behaving in a pretty delirious manner, and, and here's a quick quote from Shakespeare refer, referring to the Swiss as mercenaries, as guards. So Queen Gertrude says, Alack, what noise is this? King Claudius answers, quote, Where are my Switzers? Let them guard the door. End quote. So Switzers is an old English term for the Swiss, and as is borne out in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's work himself, uh, the Swiss were certainly renowned as mercenaries for their mercenary activities to be able to make it into such iconic literature. 
there's uh, well Jewish tradition as well. They hold that uh, the patriarch Joseph, when he was in Egypt, uh, that he didn't present his brother Gad to the Pharaoh because he was worried that because of Gad's strength, the Pharaoh would actually take Gad and use him as one of his own guards. Again, First Chronicles 12, the Gadites, men of might, men of war fit for the battle, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as the rose upon the mountains. There's a famous monument carved into a sort of stone mountain cliff in Switzerland, and it's called the Lion Monument, and it commemorates the sacrifice of Swiss mercenaries at a certain battle, in particular, Battle of the uh, 18th century, and it features a massive lion lying down, mortally wounded. So this this lion statue, uh, well, less of a statue, more of a carving, is chiseled out of the, the face of this mountain cliff edge, symbolizing these massacred Swiss mercenaries. It's one of the most famous monuments in Switzerland. It's visited every year by about one and a half million tourists. Mark Twain called it the, quote, the most mournful and moving piece of stone in the world. This monument, it, it bears the names of the Swiss guards that died, and it, and it carries a massive title above it, which, which reads, To the Loyalty and Bravery of the Swiss. So this stone carving, this, this lion carving is 20 feet high. It's 33 feet long. And again, it fits with the biblical description of Gad as, as a lion, Deuteronomy 33, uh, this time from the NASB version. This reads, Gad, he lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head, end quote. So it's repeatedly referenced in the Bible, Gad with a link to lions, a lion-like tribe, soldiers, faces of lions, a tribe who crouches, lies down like a lion. But again, from a national point of view, Switzerland has maintained a strict policy of remaining stubbornly neutral, uh, happy in a way to sit by safe and sound in an advantageous position, for example, in World Wars One and Two, while their brother tribes really were being ravaged, destroyed by Germany and her allies. But even this, even the sense of national neutrality also fits with biblical Gad. You can check out uh, Judges chapter 8. This chapter describes uh, the famous battle of Gideon and his 300 men, his battle against the Midianites. Now, Gideon had the Midianites on the run, but, but his own men were starving for food at this point. Uh, they passed through a couple of towns, the, the, the towns of Sukkot and Penuel. But both of these towns refused to provide food. They refused to provide help for Gideon. They claimed that the Midianites had not yet been defeated. It's sort of like in, in World War II, really. You've got... Uh, you've got Switzerland keeping up some form of trade and relations as long as both sides are still available, refusing to take sides. In fact, you could say they were more of a help to, to the enemy. And these two towns, they were in the tribe of Gad, Sukkot and Penuel, and they took the neutral position. They, they refused to help Gideon and his men. 
And so Gideon and his men, they continued on through the tribe of Gad. They, they defeated the Midianites uh, out on the other side. And upon their return uh, through Gad, they, they quite rightly scourged the leaders of the cities for, for refusing to provide the help for remaining neutral. So here's another link, and, and it's one connect, connected to this neutral stance that the tribe of Gad served as a place of refuge. Anciently, uh, Joshua 21, chapter 21, describes the cities of refuge that would be established around Israel. And so anyone who committed, say, an accidental homicide, they could flee to one of these cities of refuge in order to escape any retribution from angry neighbors, from from angry citizens. So one of these cities of refuge was located in the Gadite territory. And you could say, okay, well, there were six cities of refuge. Why Why was the one in Gad so special? But Gad wasn't just any place of refuge. Here are a couple of examples. King David fled to Gad while he was on the run from his son Absalom. Uh, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, apparently took refuge in Gad after prophesying against King Ahab. During the reign of Saul, the Israelite army fled to Gad after a Philistine, uh, Philistine incursion invasion. Uh, you've got the Israelite army fleeing to Gad. You've got Saul's son Ishbosheth, uh, who was made king of Israel in the land of Gad. And that was, of course, in rebellion against King David. So he secured himself within the land of Gad and made himself king. You've got the Israelite commander Abner and his soldiers that fled into the land of Gad, uh, away from David's commander, Joab, and Joab's soldiers. So you've got this repeated uh, repeated account set of accounts of of men fleeing to Gad, escaping to this place of refuge, uh, this land of refuge, the land of Gad. Even even in secular history, 66 uh, CE, just before the the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, you've got the early Christians that fled to Pella just before that destruction, and Pella was a location of ancient Gad. So all of this fits well with mountainous Switzerland, known across history, really, as a place of refuge. Switzerland was a refuge hub for for the Protestant Reformation on the European mainland, that famous break from Catholicism. It was a hub for John Calvin and Zwingli. And it was also a place of refuge, of course, in World Wars I and II, You've got a pretty famous example of that in the the more modern musical, The Sound of Music. You've got the Von Trapp family and their escape into Switzerland. And in World War II, Switzerland was known as as a lifeboat, called a lifeboat, and it interred something like 300,000 refugees. But they were strongly criticized for not admitting more. But you've got Switzerland, tribe of Gad, as a place of refuge, a place of hiding, for better or worse, uh, be it people or be it even business, with the infamous private Swiss bank accounts used by really a lot of unsavory organizations, a place of refuge. Here's another Gadite link, and it's on something totally different. 
The tribe of Gad were known for their cattle. Numbers 32 describes the Israelite approach to the promised land. And verse 1 reads, quote, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Yazer and the land of Gilead, that, behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke unto Moses, end quote. And so these two tribes, along with the half-tribe of Manasseh, they requested to establish themselves on the fine territory east of the Jordan River. So what about this? Is there any Gadite, any Swiss connection to cattle? There certainly is. Switzerland is really known for cattle produce. And of course, everyone's heard of the, Sw- the, the famous Swiss cheese. You've got fondue, cheese fondue. That is a Swiss invention. Switzerland and Belgium, uh, these are the brother tribes, again, from Zilpa, the tribes of Gad and Asher. Switzerland and Belgium both lead the world in fine chocolates. But it's Switzerland that is known for specializing in milk chocolate. And they actually invented milk chocolate. Uh, You've got Nestle, the well-known dairy and and general food company, Nestle. That's a Swiss company. And they actually started off as a milk company. So it's kind of funny for for, for such a mountainous country, but Switzerland really is known for cattle farming. The cow is a symbol of Switzerland, and in the establishment of the old Swiss Confederacy, the Swiss soldiers fought under the banner of the cow, uh, a flag bearing the symbol of a cow. And and the idea was that the Swiss cow was fighting back against the Habsburg lion. And during the the Middle Ages, the Swiss were actually derided. Uh, there There was an epithet for them, calling them cowherds. Uh, as a foreign reference to to the Swiss people. And to to this very day, you've got cattle festivals in Switzerland. You've got cows that are dressed in ornate bells and and ribbons and even massive crown garlands of flowers on their heads. They have uh, cattle fighting as well as a spectator sport. So this is, rather than as in Spain, this is uh, two bulls fighting between each other. Uh, kind of duking it out for supremacy over the herd. So that's a spectator event in uh, Switzerland. And here's a kind of humorous one. Do you use Google as a search engine? You might want to try another internet search engine called Swiss Cows. Of course, that's that's taking it a little bit far, but, but you get the point. Just like the ancient tribe of Gad, The Swiss are known for their cattle, for their cows. Okay, we'll take a short break there, and following that, we'll discuss the migration of the Israelites up into Europe, and we'll talk a bit about Gad's future. Stay with us. This is Watch Jerusalem where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. For today's program, we're examining the tribe of Gad 
and their identification as modern-day Switzerland. So if you're listening live and you missed the first part of the program or any of the other series that we've covered in the past on the lost tribes of Israel and their modern identities, I'd encourage you to go online to our website, watchjerusalem.co.il, and check out the first half of this program or any of the other ones uh, examining the characteristic prophecies, this time for the tribe of Gad, and what their national European identity would be, as Genesis 49 says, in the last days. For the last segment of this program, though, we'll briefly explain the Israelite migration up into Europe and how these Israelite tribes ended up constituting several of the major nations in Western Europe. So after Assyria's defeat of the Kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC, uh, the tribes were uprooted and they were led away captive. Where did they go? Bible prophecy makes it clear. You've got verses uh, such as Jeremiah 31 verse 8, Isaiah 49 verse 12, uh, other passages that describe, that prophesy Israel going up to the countries in the north, the coasts, and the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 12 talks about Israel largely being found northwest of Palestine, of modern-day Israel. So multiple scriptures make mention of of this, of Israel also being found in the Isles. And so what large territory in the northwest, to the northwest of the Holy Land, is there with, with coasts, isles, and control of dominions, quote, at the ends of the earth? It is, of course, Western Europe, the British Isles, and Scandinavia. Now, one of the early leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel was a man called Omri, King Omri. He was a well-respected general, uh, and he he founded the capital of Samaria for Israel. And as such, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was typically known to foreigners as the House of Omri. But Omri isn't a great translation of the world the, of the word, though. Uh, the the first letter is with a glottal stop consonant, a word that we don't have in English, and so so the Assyrians translated this word as Kumri or Gomri. Now these captive Israelites from the land of Kumri or Gomri, they were carried out to the northwest, uh, northeast, sorry, into northern Iran, as we've mentioned. They were carried out as slaves of Assyria. And again, the Bible, Second Kings, describes them being sent as far away as northern Iran. Now, it's around this point in secular history that we've got a civilization appearing on the scene known as the Cimmerians. These people are known to have migrated up into Asia Minor, and they're believed to have come from the, the region of Iran. Uh, and that these Cimmerians were known to the Greeks as Kimmeroi, the Babylonians called them Gemiri, and the, the Welsh term Kimri is linked by historians to them as well. So these people then became what are commonly known as Celts, the Kimri, Kimri, Gemiri, Kumri, Celtic people. So even today, the Celtic country of Wales is referred to as Kimri. Uh, history shows that these early Celts migrated across Europe, 
conquering and establishing themselves on the continent and in the isles. So not only does the passage, the name, and the time frame match, the practices do as well. The religious uh, leadership of the Druids, the, the pagan Celtic Druids, this actually resembles quite closely the priestly class of the pagan Israelites in Israel. Now, there isn't much we can say about the specific migration of the tribe of Gad uh, beyond a bit of speculation. Now, we talked about in our last program uh, about the tribe of Asher, modern-day Belgium. Now, both Asher and Gad were of the same handmaid, Zilpah, but that's about where the biblical connection ends. They're not linked together in later verses. Uh, the, the ancient tribes in the land of Israel, they were quite separate. Asher was on the northwest coast of Israel, and Gad was deep in the central southeast in a mountainous region. And that sort of parallels the layout today. You've got Belgium in the northwest coast, and then you've got Switzerland deep in central Europe in the mountains. And then again, uh, you do have some similarity in the fact that Belgium is split linguistically. You've got the French speakers and the Dutch speakers, half French, half Dutch. And in Switzerland, you've got a divide of languages as well into three primary languages. You've got French in the west, German in the center and in the east, and then Italian in the south. So Switzerland's pretty peculiar, actually, because of this linguistic divide. Uh, about 63% are German speakers, about 23% are French speakers, and roughly the rest of them are Italian speakers. There's some Romanian in there as well. Uh, I believe it's Romanian. But that being said, the, the Swiss are at the top of the list for multilingual countries. So they are able to communicate between each other, across the nation. But just because we have a linguistic divide in Switzerland, it doesn't mean we have a different people. Back, going back to the Celts, the Celtic tribe called Helvetai, they, uh, they established themselves on the Swiss plateau between the Alps and the Jura. So 80% of all Swiss today live on this plateau, the plateau that was settled by the Helvetai. In the east, you had some ancient mixing with the German Alemanni tribe, and that's where the German tongue was used. And then on the west, you had uh, some influence from the Burgundians, and that language evolved into the French. And so that's how you get the split of languages. And so it seems to be that, uh, that at least a significant part of the German and French-speaking parts of Switzerland, it would seem that, the, that these would relate to the tribe of Gad, and there might have been some spread into southeastern France of the Celtic tribe as well. Uh, but as Mr. Armstrong wrote in the United States and Britain and Prophecy, quote, the political boundaries of Europe as they exist today do not necessarily show lines of division between descendants of these original tribes of Israel, end quote. So there would have been some degree of spread, uh, but, but as with the other, really as with the other Israelite tribes, some Gadite spread perhaps into France, uh, but Switzerland as a whole then is the nation representative of the tribe of Gad. And it's also interesting that for the majority of Switzerland's history, 
uh, since that old Swiss confederacy began in about the 13th century. Uh, since that time, for, for the majority of Switzerland's history, uh, the nation was made up of 13 cantons or states. A canton is, a, is sort of a state of Switzerland. And this number is similar to what we see in America. You have in America, in the tribe of Manasseh, at their establishment, you had 13 colonies. 13, of course, being the total number of Israelite tribes. Back to Genesis 49, as we trace this development of Switzerland. Again, Gad wasn't an empirical force. They weren't a nation going out to conquer other territory for the nation itself. We read again uh, in Genesis 49, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. So this comes across as a nationally uh, sort of defensive posture, which Switzerland certainly has. Uh, they, they were overcome by Rome in the 1st century BCE, uh, but then in the 4th century CE, they, you could say, overcame Rome at the last. In 800 CE, they became part of Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire, but then in the 13th and 14th centuries, they were able to overcome at the last, you could say, in, in the language of Genesis 49 finally shaking off that Habsburg rule. The 15th century, you've got the Duke of Burgundy that tried to overcome Switzerland, and he failed. And then Napoleon did manage to overcome Switzerland. Uh, Again, to use that Genesis 49 language, Napoleon managed to overcome Switzerland. But Switzerland was able to reclaim their independence shortly after. So it has been a nation often overcome by troops, as Genesis 49 talks about. But Switzerland has been able throughout history to to push back those forces and to reclaim that territory for themselves. Now, at this point in the story, just following uh, following Napoleon's uh, overcoming of Switzerland, we refer back to uh, Deuteronomy 33, which reads, quote, And of Gad, he said... Blessed be he that enlarges Gad, end quote. So this is a pretty strange verse. Normally nations enlarge themselves by by conquests, but here we read, uh, blessed be he that enlarges Gad. And following Napoleon's conquest, we we sort of see see this happening, Gad being enlarged by an outside force, because in 1815, uh, there was a congress called the the Congress of Vienna, and they formally reestablished Swiss independence. The treaty allowed Switzerland to enlarge its borders to accommodate uh, three additional cantons. One of these is the famous canton of Geneva. So these enlarged borders, they've remained roughly the same to this day. And I actually found a secular source that used that exact same language, uh, unwittingly, of Deuteronomy 33, that uh, that these borders of Switzerland had been enlarged. So, uh, similar again, you've got that link to Gad. And, and since then, Switzerland's remained pretty high and dry uh, in ensuing wars. They're, they've stayed out of World, War One's, uh, World Wars I and II, and even from the European Union itself. 
But now looking forward, what of Switzerland's, what of Gad's future? The Bible has a lot to say about Israel's future as a whole, and in the short term, it's not good news. Now, end-time prophecies throughout the Bible condemn our Israelite, increasingly liberal societies for turning away from God and for siding with or even exhibiting neutrality towards uh, enemy forces. And of course, Switzerland is, is no exception, and the nation does have a lot to answer for. It might be currently a pretty happy, wealthy, prosperous country, but it's a nation built in part on, on blood money. There's new evidence showing that Swiss banks actually profited from the Holocaust, among numerous other unsavory dealings. And I'll leave a link for that in the show notes to an article from the trumpet.com, our sister website, explaining this uh, and explaining that general Swiss stance of neutrality. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 prophesies of a coming tribulation on Switzerland and her fellow Israelite countries, fellow Israelite nations. And it reads, Alas, for that day is great that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, calamity is coming upon the children of Jacob, one of whom is Gad, the tribe of Gad, tribe of Switzerland. And there will be no neutral escape this time around. At the time of that final prophesied resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, final appearance of the Holy Roman Empire once again, and the ensuing prophesied World War III. And there won't be any escape because our people have forsaken God. Daniel 12 verse 1 says, quote, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. So this is the worst time of suffering ever on this earth, prophesied to be the worst time of suffering ever. And you see with, with the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world, you can see why. God is seeking repentance from his people. The world is prophesied to be once more oppressed by a powerful Holy Roman Empire, a European superpower led by Germany. And as Genesis 49 verse 19 says, in this case, you could read, Gad, a troop shall overcome him. You could apply this to to this prophesied future as well. But there is hope. There is hope. There is hope for repentance, hope for the prophesied return of the Messiah to save our peoples from destruction. Because following that prophesied destruction, that prophesied humbling, there are prophecies throughout the Bible that reveal, under the leadership of the Messiah, the tribes of Israel will reach greater status of power than ever before in history. And so at that time, with the help of the Messiah, with with the Messiah leading, Gad truly will overcome at the last. Thanks for joining us. Till next time.